0: Well, good morning, everyone. Go ahead and grab a seat for me. I want to welcome you as well to, to Harvest. My name's Lee. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet, I have the privilege to serve here as a senior pastor. And you came to a, a Sunday that we are in a unique time of transition. So Harvest is a church that has three congregations in two locations. So we've got a Spanish congregation that meets up in Lake Nona. We have another, our original campus started in Lake Nona and then here at Harmony, which we're about 18 months. Our pastor, Trey Warren and his wife, Lauren, that helped us get this established and off and running. Um, this is our last Sunday. And so we're gonna take some time at the end of the service to celebrate them as well as at this evening from 5.30 to 7.30, we have an open house at our house. Um, would love to have you all come just come hang out bring your your horror stories your funny stories about trey and lauren as well and we're just gonna have a time being able to hang out and have fun and eat a lot of garbage so um, i've got a lot of food so i need you to come by and eat some cookies and and some dessert as, as well if you don't know where we live Come grab me. My wife, Melissa, is up here in the front. We'll give you our address. There are also some uh, little cards back there by the coffee that also have our address on it as well. So want to love to have you be there for that. We are in the middle of a series. We're calling Why God? And, and basically what we're doing is we're walking through some of the deeper questions that we all wrestle with when it comes to life. And those questions have a way of creating a blockade sometimes to our greater faith of allowing who God is to become a reality in our lives and can get in the way of us kind of taking that next step, going deeper in our understanding and our pursuit of who God is and what God wants for our lives. Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, go and turn to Luke 7. If you have your digital device, your phone, just Google Luke chapter 7. That's where we're going to be here in, in just a moment. Now my question is to kind of get started, how many times in life have you had those moments where you go, oh shoot, I shouldn't have said that? I shouldn't have sent that. And you wish there was a quick delete button on your text or your emails. Um, for some of us maybe in the room, like we've had moments where we sent out an email and didn't know that our boss had the ability to actually read those emails to only come and to, to realize later in life that I actually wrote that email about my boss that my boss actually now read. And you're going, man, I wish i never done that, yeah. right? We, we all have these moments where we say something, we do something that we wish we could take back. Uh, I can think about years ago, I was young, I was probably 26, 27. I was a new staff member at a church. We had built a good friendship with this couple. They had just had their first baby. The baby was about two months old, and we we're hanging out at church, just interacting, having a conversation. We're asking questions, and one of the more, I'll, I'll call him seasoned pastors on the staff team, um, he was in his 60s. He was the care pastor. He was the person that people went to when they needed counseling, when they needed care, when they needed help. He walked up and said, hey, it's good to see you. When are you due? And you can just see this moment across her face like, are you kidding me? And I'm, I'm again, I'm young. Like, I'm going, I knew not to ask that question as, in high school. You know, here you are in 60s, and you're, nobody wants care from you now. You know, like, if this gets out, this is going to be bad for you. We, we've all had those moments, Where we kind of go, oh, I can't believe I just did that. You know, I I still can see the the glow on his face that moment when he realized, oh, shoot, I should not have asked that question. But what about those moments in life where we have weightier decisions? Honestly, where there, there are big things in life that we're having to make decisions about. We're having to walk through moments that honestly are gut-wrenching and you don't know which way or which way to go, and you make the wrong decision. And sometimes as a result, you deep down inside, you wrestle with guilt. You're almost terrorized by the decision that you've made. And sometimes that in itself has the ability to get in the way of who we are and who God is and what God wants to do in our lives even what God wants to do through our lives, because we begin to go down this road of going, well, God knows who I am. If He really knew what I did, God would not want to do anything with me. And, and we we allow our past to begin to begin our be, become our identity of who we are, not just now in the moment, but it has the way of becoming our identity even into the future. How, how do we move through those moments? How do we make sense of those moments when we sit there and go, well, if God really knew this, he wouldn't want anything to do with me. And so we just automatically shut our faith journey down. And we just decide, you know what, I'm going to go in this direction. I'm going I'm to move away from God because God doesn't, he wouldn't want to, anything to do with me anyways. However heavy those thoughts are, I, I want you to hear this right as we start are not true. You still matter to God. He still loves you. Jeremiah 1.5 tells us that God knows us even before we were born. Think about that. How? I don't know. I don't know how that works. I wish I could give you a direct answer. I just understand that God's time frame isn't our time frame. In other words, the way that time operates in our world isn't the same way it operates in God's world. God operates outside of time. How? I don't know. I'm just not that smart. But that's what I do know. And so this is totally possible that God knew us even before we were born. If God knows you, if he knows me, then he also, get this, he also knows what we are going to do what mistakes we're going to make. He he knows the decisions. He knows the anxiety that we're going to feel. And here's the thing. Don't miss this. He created you anyways. He knew every sin that you and I would commit. Every rebellious act that would live in our hearts that would push us away from him. He knew those things, and yet he still sent his son to die for you and I. Romans 5.8 says it this way. It says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That while you and I were still sinners, Jesus died for you. He knew who you were. He knew you before you were born. He knew the decisions that you would make. He knew the rebellion that lived in your heart, and yet he still loved you enough to come and die for you. Here, here's the big idea that I want us to walk out of the room with today. It's this, simply this. There's never been a moment in your life that God didn't love you. There has never been a moment, never, even if you walked in the room today wrestling with, Is lightning going to rain down on my head because I walked into a church? Well, technically you're in a middle school, but you're in a a service. I want you to hear this. God loves you. You matter to him. There's never been a moment in your life that God hasn't loved you. It, It doesn't matter what's in your past. God already knew it and still decided that you were worth dying for. And we talked a little bit about last week in the conversation that there was this, this moment in Jesus' life, in his time, that there's a battle kind of that was going on over what it meant really to follow God. There was a leading group in this battle, a group called the Pharisees, the Pharisees were all about the letter of the law. They were all about what needed to be done. It was, their life was determined based on what we would call performancism. In other words, it was all about what do I need to do in order to make things right with God. We call that religion. Religion is about what do I need to do in order to make things right? What do I need to do in order to make my way to God? The reality is we can't. There's nothing that we can do in order to earn God's favor. And so that's the beauty of what we call the gospel, the beauty of the good news, that because we couldn't make our way to God, God chose to make his way to you and me through the person of Jesus Christ. So there's this battle that is going on. There's this group of Pharisees, the religious zealots, the religious elites. They have, they have itemized everything that you were to do and what you shouldn't do. And there was no better person at keeping the letter of the law. Like, they were all about the rules, Not my favorite type of people. I'm the type of person, like, if you make a rule, I want to break it just because you made a dumb rule. Okay? These people, this was all about. It was black and white. It was all about what I need to do and what I'm not to do. Because it was all about, if I do this right, then I can earn the favor of God. The reality is they were more about the show than they were about actually earning the favor of God. They wanted everybody to believe that they had it all figured out. And as we talked about even last week, like, Jesus calls out the show. He's like, don't, don't do this. Because we know deep down inside there's so much more going on here. But the reality is, they thought maybe I could earn God's mercy, but the reality is we can't earn God's mercy. And as a result, like... All these things, the task list of what to do and what I don't have to do, that, when you live your life based on those things, it becomes oppressive. Why? Because we can't do it. None of us are perfect at carrying out all of those things. And some of Jesus' harshest criticism actually was directed towards those Pharisees, those religious zealots. Because, again, it was, their heart wasn't aligned with what they were actually doing. There was a hypocrisy of their lives. What we're going to take a look at today in Luke chapter 7 is an interaction that we see. There's kind of three key characters. There's a Pharisee named Simon. You have Jesus. And then there's a woman. I want us to take a look at this story because I think what it does is it helps us wrestle with our own issues of what can sometimes blockade what God is wanting to do in our lives and through our lives. Because, again, we can self-identify ourselves and go, well, because I've done XYZ, God doesn't want anything to do with me. But there's something different here that we're going to see in Luke chapter 7 that I think God wants all of us to begin to understand and and grapple with. So we're going to take a look at this. We're going to start in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. Go ahead and follow along with me here. So starting in verse 36, it says one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. So he asked Jesus, hey, would you come eat? Eat with me at my house. He went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, it's interesting how that is the description here that's captured, when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house. Let me stop right here. Did you catch what's going on? So, an uninvited woman who is labeled here as a sinner most commentators would actually identify her as probably a person of the night. In other words, she's a prostitute. She's an uninvited woman, walks into a Pharisee's house, a house full of religious, holy, devout men. Now here's my issue with this story. I'm not even certain that this was the first time that she had ever been to this house. Again, this is a little bit of a leism, okay? So I'm I'm reading into the context of what's going on here, because why did they let her in? She knew exactly where she was to go. Nobody stopped her from entering. It's almost like they're kind of going. She's back. I'm just saying, it's interesting. That when she heard Jesus was at the Pharisee's house, she knew which house that was. She, there's like, it's almost obvious that she's been here before. And, and it's, I find, again, it's fascinating. Nobody here kicks her out. Like She has the ability to enter in, find Jesus, go to the table, and interact with Jesus at the table. Nobody pulls her up. Nobody says, you're not welcome here. Nobody kicks her out. Just an interesting thing to note here. So here, back in verse 37. She learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Wiped him with her hair and her head. Kissed his feet, anointed them with oil. Let me stop there again. She's uninvited. And this lady, in this moment, she does what is absolutely, in every way, unthinkable. She let her hair down and begins to wash the feet of Jesus. Culturally, this in every way was absolutely unacceptable. If you, at this, this point in culture, in Jewish culture... If you were a married woman and you let your hair down in front of other men, that was considered to be scandalous and could be grounds for divorce. Like, this is how crazy this moment is. And I think sometimes we bypass it quickly in our culture and understanding today. This, this woman is uninvited, walks into the house of a religious, holy, devout man who's centered around other religious, holy, devout men. And she, before Jesus, lets her hair down, which again is completely scandalous. She's probably a person of the night. She, every way this scene should not be taking place, and yet it is. We get to verse 39. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, He said to himself, if you have an old school Bible, underline that. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is and who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Now, 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 I love this because I think this is so quickly missed. Because the text Bible, the the text in the Bible says Jesus answered him. Simon wasn't talking to Jesus. Remember, he's talking to himself. This is an extremely hashtag awkward moment. Jesus answers a question that was never asked. Imagine if you were Simon. You're sitting here thinking to yourself, "Oh, Jesus really knew who this woman was. You know, he calls himself a prophet. There's a way, you know. He's just kind of he's mumbling these thoughts to himself." And I love this. It's like Jesus is getting in his head. Jesus just in that moment directly answers Simon. Jesus begins to answer him. I mean, it makes me laugh because Jesus knows what you're thinking. He knows what you wrestle with. He knows the anxiety that keeps you up at night. He knows what you're thinking about doing before you actually do it. There's no hiding it. Simon thought he was getting away with this moment. Jesus turns to him and they begin to have a conversation. And Jesus answers Simon with a story. Jesus is so masterful at this. He tells these parables, these stories to make a point. And he begins to do so with Simon. So you got Jesus reading Simon's mind, and Jesus begins to answer him. Simon says, yeah, hey, say it to me, teacher. Then we get to first 41. This is where the story begins to, to open up. It says a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. So, big difference between what their debts were. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Jesus just poses that question. Simon answered, well, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. He said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. That and alone was a sign of disrespect. And he knew better. When you had guests coming to your house, remember, they wore sandals. Their feet were dirty. They were dusty. They were full of all kinds of who knows what. It was normal. It was context. It was traditional For when you had guests to come over to have their feet washed, your servant would come before them, wash their feet. This man who's prided himself on outward adornment, all that I do, what people see, putting on the show, he disrespects Jesus when he invites him home right off the bat because he chooses not to wash his feet. Jesus is pointing that out to him. He said, you gave me, you know, You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them away with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who has forgiven little loves little. Jesus in this moment is a remarkable moment, and you, you don't miss this. The Pharisees' biggest issue with Jesus was his personal claims for who he was, that he was God. And Jesus, in this moment, when he says, her sins are forgiven, he is claiming before them, don't miss who I am, Simon. Don't miss this. I know the beef that you've had with me. I know our history. I know all the things that have been said behind my back. Don't miss this. I'm God, and her sins are forgiven. Verse 48, he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Just as we talked about, who even forgives sins. He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. There there are three critical things, three lessons that we learn from this this portion of scripture that I really want us to key in this morning. The, The first thing is simply this self-righteousness has the ability to make us blind self-righteousness makes us blind there's a unique thing that we see taking place here first of all our self-righteousness makes us blind to other people's needs simon totally misses this woman because jesus the the phrase jesus says to simon after he begins to tell the story says do you see this woman Simon missed who she really was. Simon is objectifying her. He's not seeing her as a woman. He's seeing her simply as a sinner. He's objectified who she is. She's not a part of society. She's not a part of culture. She's not welcome her. He has identified solely who she is and created an identity based on what she has done, not who she is as a person. Self-righteousness has the ability to cloud our ability to see people for who they really are, see the needs that actually exist in our community. We're going to talk about that at the end of the service a little bit. The second thing I find is interesting is self-righteousness didn't allow Simon to see Jesus for who Jesus really was. Here is Jesus, the creator, God from heaven above in flesh, leaning back, reclining at his table, and Simon didn't see Jesus for who he really was. Our own self-righteousness has the ability to cloud our thinking and cloud the ability for God to actually have access to the inner parts of our soul and to guide us to become the people who he's called us to be. The third thing I find is interesting about this self-righteousness and the blindness side of things. When we begin to self-proclaim ahead of time, Well, God doesn't want anything to do with me because of X, Y, Z. That's a form of self-righteousness. Because you are putting yourself in position above God, saying God would never want to do anything with me because of X, Y, Z. You're not allowing God to have space in your life. So when you do that, you're placing yourself above him because you're going, I'm the one that actually makes the decisions of what is good and what is not, what's lovable and what's not. We all need to guard ourselves from being self-righteous. Because the reality, what Jesus is pointing out to Simon, none of us have that ground to stand on. We're all a mess. We're all broken. We all have our own issues. We all have our own hurts, habits, and hang-ups that all need to be dealt with. And here's the thing, going back to what we talked about at the beginning. Even despite all of those things, Jesus still loves you. He's chosen to love you even before you were born. Amazing. So we need to, number one, self-righteousness has the ability to make us blind. The second thing that we learn from this is unholiness never disqualifies us from God's love. Unholiness never disqualifies us from God's love. Here, Jesus is making the statement, and even in the, the context of the story, he's drawing our attention to the debts and things that we exist in our lives. And he's helping us understand that this woman, from a cultural standpoint, and every perspective, is unholy. She didn't have the right, based on her history, based on the culture, based on the context, to be in the presence of these men, let alone touch these men, let alone let her hair down in front of these men, all of this is scandalous. But when you put it into perspective of what the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and why Jesus came, if we begin to understand this at a totally different level. The reality is, you and I, we're all unholy. We're all a wreck. You know, you, you have this standard of holiness. God set apart. There is nothing like him which means those things that are unholy really can't exist in his presence. But we're unholy. We've got a problem. That's why there's a separation. That's why there's a gap that exists relationally between us and our creator. Holy God, we're not, so unholiness cannot exist in the presence of holiness. That's how holy God is. I don't think we understand the depth and the damage of our own sin and our own rebellious hearts because we don't truly understand the holiness of God. That's why we need Jesus. It's not about anything that we do. We cannot work our way back. So God, because of his love and his knowledge and who he is, chose to love us first. That while we were unholy, while just as Romans 5 talks about, while we were still sinners, while we are weak, Jesus died for us. He took the penalty. He took everything that we deserve to have. He took the wrath of God upon himself so that it could be made right. What a gift. What a gift. The third thing is, grace is real. It's life-changing. If we're willing to receive it, grace is a very, very real thing, and it will change your life if you're willing to receive it from Christ. Here's what we need to understand: sin is a debt, and the way that scriptures talk about it is our what we deserve, our wage for our sin, our wage because of our own debts is death. When we begin to look at the story that Jesus tells here, he helps us understand, you and I, we're all in debt. Some of us, maybe a little bit more debt than others, but the reality is, we're all in debt. We all need help. And Jesus came to pay the debts. When you begin to doubt God, could God possibly love me with all that I've done, all that I've said, because of our past. Remember that his word is true. It's perfect. It is never failing. What is grace when we really begin to try to understand it? Grace is always more than we deserve and better than you and I could ever imagine. His love for you where you're at right now, the struggles that you're dealing with, the hidden things that you don't want anybody else to know, his grace is sufficient. It is more than we deserve, and it's better than you could ever, ever imagine. Friends, don't, don't, don't allow your past to be your identity into the future. Hand it over to Jesus. Allow him to deal with it. Allow him to walk with you through it. Allow him to give you a new purpose, a new value of what this can look like into the future. And I promise you, it's more than you deserve, and it's better than you could ever imagine. Romans 5, I want to finish off with this passage. Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, says it this way, that for while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the one thing that all of us have in common. That's why it's important for us to find time that we can gather together, On a Sunday morning, small groups, one-on-one over coffee, we need these reminders. We need people in our corner that helps us understand and make sense of the decisions in our past and help us move forward and experience new freedom that comes because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished. No matter where you're at, no matter what questions you're wrestling with, no matter what past issues you may be dealing with, I want you to know we're here for you. God loves you. You matter to him because you matter to him, you matter to us. And we intend to do this journey together. I'm no different. I'm, I'm in debt, and I needed a Savior. And Jesus has released me from those and given me a whole new perspective of what life can look like. And here's the thing. There's so many other people in our community don't know this truth. This is also why we invest. This is why we invite into our community. Those that are so far from Jesus that they may be set free and understand the truth of who Jesus is and what he came to do.